0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writingexcuses. Season 18, Episode 40. This is Writing Excuses, the business of the end of schlock mercenary.
1: Fifteen minutes long.
0: Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette.
2: I'm Dong Lun. I'm Aaron. I'm Howard. And joining us is my business partner, partner in crime, uh, boss, uh, the, the person who makes all of the business work, Sandra Taylor.
3: Yay, Hello. Sandra. Woo-hoo. Howard, Welcome. we're not supposed to talk about the crime <laughs> 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 on tape. Well, and if you've
2: got it on tape, you shouldn't have recorded it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
3: Anyway. Uh,
1: Howard, I would love to start with a bigger question. That before we dive into the business end of things, um, you spent many, many years on this project. It's twenty volumes. What did it feel like to conclude it? Like what? What was that moment like for you?
2: Um, it's there's there's layers here. And unfortunately, the biggest layer is that I wrapped it in July of 2020 when there was this global pandemic mm-hmm. happening. Oh, yeah. And I was sick. i I came down with in in late January, early February, I got sick, went to the emergency room, and they said, it's some virus, it's not influenza, It's not a pneumonia virus. It's not bacterial. Um, some virus we don't know, we, we can't identify. You haven't been to China, have you? Ha ha ha. Um, and then I never really got better. And by, by June, July of 2020, I was tired all the time. And so wrapping this up kind of felt like boy, it's a good thing that I chose to end it when I did because Mm. I couldn't have kept going. And I know that's kind of a terrible, sad way to describe it because I would love to have kept drawing forever, but one of the biggest feelings I had was relief. Mm -hmm. Yay, I finished it before dying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think even without getting sick, I think relief is a big part of finishing a project like that. I don't think that's an unusual thing to feel at that stage. You know, I mean, this thing you've been thinking about every day for however many years, uh, there has to be some aspect of that to be done with it.
3: Right. Well, and it's it's a weirdly staggered experience because we, ha- we had an emotional reaction three years before the comic ended when Howard realized he needed to end it. And so we had an emotional process to do mm-hmm. at that point. And then there was the pandemic... You know, we were going to end it. We planned to end it in 2020, and then we had a pandemic, and there was this moment of, should we yoink back from that decision? You know, Um, very, very brief moment, because there were so many reasons it was right, we'll get into. But, and then it's been ended for three years now, and yet we are still putting out books. So in one way, it is not yet done Mm -hmm. until we have all of the books in our hands. And then today, I... Confess to listening in through the door through the last episode so that I could get my head into the recording space. And I had this weird moment of, oh wow, it's really over. Oh, As mm. like today, mm. this moment, I'm actually a little bit teary here, like thinking, oh my gosh, we did this thing and it's done. And so I and I actually think that's a useful realization with, with large, especially large, long-extending projects. You rarely get that moment of "we're done, yay, triumph" mm-hmm. that happens in a, a recognizable way. It it gets fractured.
1: It can be kind of diffuse, right? Publishing yeah. a book is like this too. You publish a book, then you go on tour, you do events or whatever it is. Then the paperback comes out. Then you know, there's all these like little things. So it's hard to like have that one declarative moment where you feel like, "Oh, we did the thing, and now we can rest." You know,
2: I can contrast it very starkly against quitting the day job at Novell in, right. uh, on Talk Like a Pirate Day in 2004. <laughs> um, the, I hope you handed
1: in your resignation in pirate speech. <laughs> I,
2: it did not actually occur to me to do that um, but because I didn't want to jeopardize severance. Um, the, uh, I, I left and the very first day home was just relief. Oh, I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. And then I had friends telling me, uh, you know, hey, you know, while you're, while you're while while the information you have in your head is still fresh, you could do s- some contracting work for us. You could you could do some advising. And I remember thinking, n- n- no, I need this to be dead. I need these. I need this to be done. I need this When an author finishes a book and the publisher says, now you need to do some contracting for us where you, you know, go out and do signings and do, go do this and go do this, um, as an author, maybe you want to say no. But there's also, yay, I love this thing. I made it. Now, I, now let me help you sell it. When I was done with Novell, I was done. And with the end of Schlock Mercenary, it was not that. It was not that at all. It was still huge. Well, I think and in, it, in
3: some ways it never will be. You know, this this whole series will continue to exist. People will continue to discover it. And and so we it is more like having a child that leaves the house and you still get notes and and they come back and do their laundry every once in a while, you know, um, than it is like leaving a job. Uh because it continues to exist and we can continue to interact with both the stories as they exist and with the people who love the stories. Mm -hmm. I Um,
2: need Schlock to get a scholarship and go to college on his own dang money and not to need to come home and do laundry (laughs) and then to immediately start funding my retirement.
3: I like this plan.
2: That's a better metaphor.
3: Okay, cool. We'll roll with that one.
0: Yeah. I mean, Schlock (laughs) can't really come home to do laundry because he wears no
4: clothes. This is true. This is true. To run with that metaphor, though.
0: <laughs> no, no that's good.
4: it's good. Uh, um, how is Schlock funding your retirement? Let's talk about sort of, we're talking a little bit about the business of the end, but I feel like probably want to start with the business of the beginning. You know, in order for us to get where we are now, you started somewhere. So how did you get from, I'm going to do this creative thing to, I'm going to build a business out of this?
3: Well, from, from my perspective, the beginning of Schlock Mercenary was uh, Howard Taylor coming to me and saying, I think I'm going to take up doodling as a hobby. And I said, you do that. That sounds lovely. He was in a space where uh, we'd had some health issues and uh, he was no longer traveling. He was still working at Novell and he had some extra time. out. And our record production to business had finally fully failed. Um, and so he had time. And I was like, you need hobbies. Hobbies are good. Within Oops. a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I He oh. later in life had to make a rule that he had to stop making jobs out of his hobbies. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that was the very beginning. It was probably two years into the project before I always supported him. But it was two years in where I was like, oh, yeah, you are an artist. Okay. You know. Where where I could see that the skills uh, had built, and uh, and so that was that was the abrupt beginning. It's it's the Howard picks up with an idea and runs with it, and I get trailed after and keep up and start building logistical track and structure around the thing, um, starting with. A cardboard box that the drawing supplies went in so that it could pull it to the table and draw at the kitchen table and then put everything in the box so that the... That's
2: uh, where that box came yes, from. Yes, that's where that it box... It just materialized one mm-hmm. day.
3: Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, exactly. And then buying the desk and then, uh, yeah, logistics are, are a lot of what I do, Um and a lot of them are literally uh Howard runs and I figure out well he's going to need this and by the time he realizes he needs this I've got it to hand to him. Mm-hmm. So um,
1: how did that start to transition into income for you guys? What were those initial sources? Was it advertising on the site? Was it paid subscribers? It was the
2: first it was the first book. Yeah. Uh I had I had contracted with Steve Jackson Games to for them to be the publisher and, you know, their distrib- distribution and whatever. Um, and then we looked at the numbers and I realized I we I had already quit Novell at that point. And I was like, by the time this hits print, we will be out of money and I will have to go get another job. This mm-hmm. is, you know, they were offering me royalty money, but they were saying, you know, even at, at you know, a really good royalty of, you know, 10% on cover price, um, they were saying, you know, probably only sell... 2,500 books, like, well, that's not enough to live off. Mm-hmm. And Steve Jackson, bless his heart, and I've said this before, uh, said to us, if you want to make a living off of this, you're going to have to self-publish. Uh, here, uh, talk to my partner, Monica, about uh, some of the intricacies of self-publishing. And we self-published. And yeah, that first book sold uh, 1,900 copies at 20 bucks each. And they cost us like a buck eighty, buck ninety, and suddenly we had six months of money. And I remember Sandra looking at that and saying, "Well, can we have another book ready in six months?"
3: Yeah, and that that was the that's the model we've done ever since, which is uh, release a book, get a big pile of money, make it last until you can do the next book, Um, and which which is the. Core, but also built into that is as you have that big pile of money and you're making decisions about how to spend it, some of it has to go into infrastructure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of it goes into you know paying down your house or paying off your student loans or all of the things that make your understructure financially more stable mm-hmm. um, so that uh, the next time Howard grabs an idea and runs with it, Uh, I already have some structure out there that I can tap uh, rather than making it up on the fly.
2: Before we grab any more ideas and run with them, we need to take a break.
5: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? (laughs)
0: I want to talk to you about something that is not a book. Uh, These are called Fluent Pet Buttons. Anyone who follows me on social media knows that I have a cat who talks, uh, Elsie. My cat uses buttons in a thing called augmentative interspecies communication, which is basically each button has a word on it and she presses the buttons and she has 104 words that she uses to communicate with me. Um, I'm very excited about this, but the reason I'm bringing it up, partly because I think everybody with a pet should actually do this, Uh, it's fun enrichment, but also as a science fiction writer, I am having a conversation with a non-human intelligence on a daily basis. The way she parses language, the way she thinks about things is completely different than the way people do. It's fascinating, it's fun, and I have a, a... code that you can use to get a discount. So if you want to try a journey with your pet, you can go to fluent.pet and use the code want at checkout.
2: Welcome back. I promised I would grab an idea and run away with it. Um, what is, for you, Sandra, was there a turning point between the the scrambling every six months for a book, and suddenly this felt stable. I don't feel I'm. I don't feel like it was stable with the first couple of books. No. I I felt very panicked.
3: Yeah, no. The I think the stability I really started feeling stable with the Challenge Coin Kickstarter in 2013.
1: How did you fund the first couple of books? Were those kickstarters or were those direct to customer sales? Direct pre-order with PayPal. Yeah,
3: yeah. Okay. Uh, PayPal was new.
1: Got it. We're
3: mm-hmm. we're very old. Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> you know, PayPal was new, and the existence of PayPal let us do pre-orders.
2: It was April of two thousand six. Was the mm-hmm. first uh, right. the first PayPal and and there's an important financial principle here. We had we we opened the pre-orders and. Within hours, I got a phone call from PayPal and they were asking if I was making a thing called Schlock Mercenary under new management. And I said, yes, that's a real product. You can go out to the website and you can read the webcomic and they'll say, okay, good. Just wanted to make sure because we'd already accumulated, you know, $10,000 worth of Mm pre-orders. But the thing that changed was this realization that credit card companies... Uh, if you take more than thirty days to deliver after you've taken payment, mm-hmm. um, the credit card companies get very cross. And we were taking pre-orders, and then we'd have like a three-month delivery cycle. Mm. And PayPal, uh, for a while, sort of accidentally underwrote that,
1: mm. and
2: then we actually everybody was called account called to account on it, and. Yeah. Uh, it was Kickstarter that changed it, where yeah. Kickstarter said you can accept money and you can take a year or more right. to yeah. deliver the product.
3: So yeah, yeah. The other things that were into play, we actually would have to front the money. Hmm. Um, a lot of times we would front the money for the printing, and because we were printing in China and our books would take three months from yeah. from printing to actually delivery, um, we wouldn't start the pre order until the books got on the boat, and and so there was that. Terrifying. We've spent a pile of money and, and the checking accounts are getting low. The other thing was um, those first two or three books, uh, I would have to yoink, you know, we'd get pre-orders through PayPal. And then I would have to yoink the money out of PayPal as quickly as possible because PayPal would, in fact, freeze our account. It's like the annual, like... I need to. Uh, it's time to do the phone call to PayPal. Oh yeah. um, And then on the shipping end, uh, there was the regular phone calls to the credit card companies. I was using credit cards to buy the. So I would, I would spend seven thousand dollars on postage. Yeah. Uh, and they would think that that's fraudulent because it. Completely, lo- And, and uh, finally, one of our credit cards uh, just put a note on the account. Don't freeze this. Like, yeah. <laughs> just let, them, let them spend the money. Um, and- well,
2: they, at some point, they realized, oh, we turn off their credit card and they start spending money in some other way? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I would, I would Maybe. just
3: swap to the different yeah. card. And, yeah.
1: Um- you know, as someone who... It's coming up on 20 years in publishing. I'm deeply resisting the urge to grill you on all the logistics of all these (laughs) things. Oh, there's so many. For me, there's a lot of fascinating stuff here. But I do feel like we should probably move on to um, sort of the evolution of the business of how you guys got from, you know, printing your own books initially, you know, doing this. Where's the business at now? You know, it's been 2006 to almost 20 years for you guys as well. How has that evolved to what the business looks like today now that you're reaching sort of the end of the publication cycle here?
3: The core business remains the same. Uh, we run a crowdfunding or pre-order and pile of money and pile of books. And then, you know, we buy the books 5,000 at a time and slowly sell them. I mm-hmm. have a physical warehouse that mm-hmm. I pay rent on. Um, and it is full of tens of thousands of books. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a very, I mean, that sounds very big in your head. It's, it's small for a warehouse, but uh, that giant stacks of paper, we can continue selling those for years. And that is actually one of the reasons that we are profitable is because, you know, we can buy them 5,000 and backlist. And we've had to reprint books, one, two, three, and four and five uh, because we ran out and mm-hmm. we had to reprint them. Um,
2: it's a good problem to have. It's a good Absolutely. problem to have. It well, sucks
3: I'm, at the time. But yeah. but the other thing uh, that I'm, I'm juggling right now is uh, as we're doing books, you know, 18, 19, 20, we're finishing out the way we began. But then once everything is in print, that opens the possibility for collector's editions and, mm-hmm. and collected sets eventually. Mm-hmm. We won't do that until I've sold through. The inventory that's sitting in my warehouse, mm-hmm. because I do not want to end up with thousands of dollars of inventory that, or yeah. tens of thousands of dollars of inventory.
1: Box sets can be very good, though. They, yeah. they
3: can be, and and that's that's one of the possible future things that we potentially could do. Um,
2: one of the one of the smartest things that we did. There were two things that were that were really kind of brilliant, and one was making the last page blank. So that I could sketch in a book, Mm. and we charged an extra ten bucks for that at first. Now it's an extra twenty. Now it's an extra twenty, and
3: I think might be twenty
2: five. I'm no longer in charge of that. (laughs) I I stopped asking how much it's worth. Um, I can do those sketches in less than two minutes each, and people understand they are not getting they are not getting a commission. They are getting essentially a very fancy signature. Um, that that personalizes their book. Um, that's you, you sell a thousand sketch editions. That's twenty thousand dollars of extra money. That's that was super useful to have, especially early on. Mm-hmm. And the second the second really good decision we made was slipcases for the sets of books because at a convention. Having a slipcase for books one through five and offering a ten dollar discount when you buy them this way removes decision paralysis from people who are looking at this huge raft of books. And they're like, oh, oh, I can just buy this thing. Oh, that's heavy. That's a giant brick of mm-hmm. whatever. Yes, it's heavy, and it's only ninety five dollars or whatever. And can you define slipcase for the audience? Oh, sorry, slipcase. It's a. It's essentially a uh, uh, cardboard box that's open on one end. Mm-hmm. Um, a very heavy, shiny, you know, attractive mm-hmm. cardboard box that exactly fits the books, so they slip yep. in and out.
3: Yeah, like a box set. Mm-hmm. Um, the question of what comes next is imminent in our brains uh, kind of constantly right now because yeah. the, answer, <laughs> <laughs> the answer is until we get these last three books out, what comes next is those three books. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that gives me three more piles of money. With which I can build infrastructure and plans, and hopefully some runway on other projects. You know, Howard is has got some prose novels that are in the Schlockaverse that he is working towards. I have got uh, uh, a book that I'm working on, um, and and we are building uh, additional. Uh, Trying to build income streams that don't depend on Howard's being the The, pitchfork. That don't involve
2: involve me needing to spend quite as much time as I used to be able to spend. Right. Um, In 2017, um, I was able to do a weekly comic—sorry, weekly—a daily comic with no—missing no days while drawing over the course of six weeks— um, 250 cards for Steve Jackson Games uh, uh, the uh, Starfinder, Munchkin Starfinder mm-hmm. um, and I was literally working from 6am to midnight every day and loving it because my job involves, you know, sitting and drawing and, and just, I cannot physically do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Long COVID has stolen at least eight of those 14 hours from me. And it used to be that, you know, we'd look at a project like this. Yeah, these last three books, and while we're doing covers and marginalia and whatever, um, I'm also going to be working on a new thing.
3: Right. And Howard is one track. He used to be multi-track, and now he is one track. And which, you know, uh, I could delve into... 20 or 30 minutes just talking about my own career positioning that I am attempting to do Um, the, the infrastructure I'm building for me to support more uh, of the income generation work. Mm -hmm. Um, But that would be an entire separate discussion. Um, An interesting one, but, but uh, the, I think bringing it back, you know, it's this pivot point that I think every creative ends up in at some Mm -hmm. point where you've either finished a large project or your publisher dropped you or life changed or whatever, where you suddenly had a way you were going and you had a Momentum and and suddenly you have to left turn, which requires the brakes, and everything shifts in the vehicle and uh, and you have to figure out what comes next, um, which is one of the huge reasons for when you have that pile of money building the infrastructure so that when you hit that hard left turn, there's an you know
2: mm-hmm.
3: a, yeah. You you don't, you
2: don't go buy a midlife crisis car. Right. You,
3: (laughs) right. And yeah. yeah, And that's, that's, that is where we are. And yes, uh, when I look beyond the next three books, there's giant question marks out there. However, I also, that's very familiar because, Mm -hmm. because pulling all the way back to the very beginning in 2004 when Howard quit Novell, We'd made negative $600 on cartooning that year, and he quit his comfortable corporate job to be a cartoonist. And so while it's tiring to be back negative, at that point— Negative three <laughs> figures. Yeah, it's negative $300.
2: Negative $600. It, it was six, you're $600. Old. I thought you said negative six figures. Yeah, I— No, 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 no. Negative 600. 600. <laughs> yeah. 600 Yeah, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, six versus, a a six six- <laughs> versus a six-figure income at Novell. Right. Yes. right, right, right. right. Yes. yes. That was
1: Yeah, he had yeah. just
3: cracked six figures. The
1: delta was negative six figure. <laughs>
2: it was a,
4: <laughs> there's a reason that came into effect.
3: Yeah. 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 It,
1: I mean, it was a delta.
3: it was very terrifying. Oh, and and four young children. Yeah. Um and a house. Uh we did not yet have a cat, but um <laughs> that's the difference. I think mean. yeah, yeah, there I you am. go. Um and so, in one way, the future is terrifying. In another way, it is full of opportunity. Exactly. Hmm. And in another way, it is familiar. Yeah. And so, learning how to be comfortable with the uncertainty of it all. Exactly. And to focus on, I do a lot of this. I get to put out the next schlock book. I get to, right now, I'm in the middle of drafting my nonfiction book, and I get to do that. And then I'm going to get to send it through a writer's group. And I'm going to get to, there's another novel I'm going to write, and I'm going to get to submit it to There are so agents. many
2: parts of this that we love so much.
3: When you focus on the fact that you get to do the piece that's in front of you, and mm-hmm. once it's done, it is safely in the past, and you will always have gotten to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm. No matter what happens to the project in the future, you got to do that piece. Yeah. And you there is to a keep
2: huge it. difference between the quality of life of you know uncertainty about layoffs, uncertainty about what your boss is going to assign you to, and the quality of life of I'm doing something I love, but I don't know where the paychecks are going to come from. 18 months from now, mm-hmm. there is a huge difference there. Uncertainty in both cases. But I'm just full of gratitude to be on this path. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of something that Phil Folio said, private forum of uh, professional cartoonists, where we were having this exact conversation. Someone was ending a project and, and other people were like, why, how can you even? And Phil Folio said, hey, guys, guys, every one of us here has created something whose pictures and story are paying our bills, you did it once, you can just do it again. Which is very <laughs> Phil Folio for ignore the fact that I got lucky, ignore the fact that opportunity was No, I did this one time, I can find a way to do it again. And I love channeling that level of manic optimism.
1: It, it's sort of required because if you spend too long looking at the ways that this can go wrong, you'll never get anything done, right? There's a little bit of A a mental state you have to put yourself in that has that incredible optimism and confidence in your work. You also need to be realistic. You also need to be planning for when things don't go well. And so you can make that hard turn when you need to. But to put your work out in the world and ask people for money for it, to to focus on a creative work in in a business world, it requires a little bit of exactly what you're talking about of I've done it. I can do it. I believe this is going to work.
3: When I was talking about building that infrastructure uh, and you were talking about you know being smart about money, one of the pieces of infrastructure that we have in place that's invisible is I have a highly employable skill set that I mm-hmm. am not afraid to use and go get a corporate job with benefits if that is what our family needs in order to keep the roof over the head because I love the creative career, but also – I like eating, and I like my house. So, um, and so that is th- that. When I talk about infrastructure, that's some of it. You know, I have been building job skills the whole way across, and I am very employable right now. Uh, economy is a different issue, but you know, <laughs> um, but that is that is a piece of the be smart while being joyful and creative. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is your fallback? What is your
4: yeah, we
2: could, oh gosh, we we could talk about the business angles of this for hours and hours and hours. And I think, Sandra, uh, what we ought to do is send people to your Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Sandra Taylor, spell Taylor with an E-R, um, the creative community tier uh you talk about these things all the time. You've got creative check-ins and yes. business well, discussions. I, and
3: I, Many of my recorded classes go up there. Um, I have started a once a month, people can uh, vote on what you would like me to write a thing about. Um, and I'm happy to host meet and greets and Q&As and, and things like that because, yeah, there's a lot to, to unpack here.
2: There's so much involved in turning the wondrous worlds we come up with into money. <laughs> and oh. I think that's where our homework is.
1: So our homework this week is I want you to start thinking a little bit like Sandra. Uh, I want you to make a plan for how to monetize one aspect of your work. This could be submitting a short story for publication, figuring out how you're going to send out your novel, uh designing a paid newsletter or Patreon, Um, it doesn't have to be something you do today or tomorrow, but start thinking and making a plan about what you can be doing to make this creative work that you're doing part of your future income.
4: But wait, there's more. And what it is, is that this is the conclusion of our Howard deep dive, which wish we could deep dive even deeper, but we're moving on to my deep dive next. Uh, which will uh, be about three short stories that I've written. So I'm letting you know now so that you can read them. Uh, we will put the links to them in the liner notes, but they are the story "Wolfy Things, which was originally published in PodCastle, Sour Milk Girls, which was published in Clark's World, and Snake Season, which was published in The Dark. All of them have audio versions in addition to print versions and are available for free online. I also want to note I tend to write things that are on the darker side. Uh, wolfy things involves wolves and violence uh, in it. So if you don't like violence and wolves being combined, may not be for you. Uh, snake season deals with child death. Uh, and so that also may not be for you. And if it's not, you can listen in anyway. We'll be talking about sort of what's going on beneath the surface and the craft. So even if you don't have... That's not the thing that you want to be reading or listening to. Please come back as we talk about it and dive deeply into it starting next week.
0: This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write.
1: Please rate and review us five stars on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Your ratings help other writers discover us for the first time.
0: Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long standing and respected website, magazine archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror.